Amen. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 1. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city, speaking of Jerusalem? Yea, shalt thou show her her abominations? Then say thou, Thus saith the Lord God, The city sheddeth blood in the midst of it, that her time may come, and maketh idols against herself to defile herself. Thou art become guilty in thy blood that thou hast shed, and hast defiled thyself in thine idols which thou hast made. And thou hast caused thy days to draw near, and are come even unto thy years. Therefore have I made thee a reproach unto the heathen, and a mocking to all countries. Those that be near and those that be far from thee shall mock thee, which art infamous and much vexed. Behold, the princes of Israel, every one were in thee to their power to shed blood. In thee have they set light by father and mother. In the midst of thee they have dealt by oppression with the stranger. In thee have they vexed the fatherless and the widow. Thou hast despised mine holy things and hast profaned my Sabbaths. In thee are men that carry tales to shed blood. And in thee they eat upon the mountains. In the midst of thee they commit lewdness. In thee have they discovered their father's nakedness. In thee have they humbled her that was set apart for pollution. And one has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. And another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. In thee have they taken gifts or bribes to shed blood. Thou hast taken usury and increase, and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion, and hast forgotten me, saith the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I have smitten mine hand at thy dishonest gain which thou hast made, and at thy blood which hath been in the midst of thee. Can thine heart endure, or can thine hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with thee? I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. And I will scatter thee among the heathen or the nations and disperse thee in the countries and will consume thy filthiness out of thee. And thou shalt take thine inheritance in thyself in the sight of the nations and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, the house of Israel is to me become dross All they are brass and tin and iron and lead in the midst of the furnace. They are even the dross of the silver. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Because you are all become dross, behold, therefore, I will gather you in the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it, So will I gather you in mine anger and in my fury and will leave you there and melt you. Yea, I will gather you and blow upon you in the fire of my wrath and you shall be melted in the midst thereof. As silver is melted in the midst of the furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst thereof and you shall know that I the Lord have poured out my fury upon you. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that it is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed or mortared or plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, 
saying, Thus saith the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy, yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them in the fire of my wrath. Their own way I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. The Bible is very clear to us from Genesis all the way through to Revelation that it is the Lord God that created all things who controls the fate and the destiny of the nations of the world. He alone holds that power. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, when God was speaking by his spirit through his prophet unto King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon at that time, He said that you will be as a beast of the field for seven years until you know or acknowledge that it is the Most High that rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men and He sets over them whomsoever He wills. God controls the nations. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, the Lord declares again by the Spirit of God, He says that the nations of the world are as a drop in the bucket before me and as dust in the balances. He alone is the one who weighs the actions and controls the outcomes of what happens amongst the nations of the world. And it's as light a thing as dust for him to do it. In Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist again declares by the Spirit of God, and he says, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And then he talks about how they conspire among themselves to try to throw off the control and the power of God from controlling them. But the psalmist concludes concerning it in verse 4. He says concerning their plot that the Lord shall laugh for he will have them in derision because he will have his way amongst the nations of the world. When God first came to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15, and promised of him that he would make of him a nation. He told him that his descendants would inherit the land that would become Israel, and that is today present-day Israel. And in the midst of God's word that he gave to Abraham, he told him that he would dispossess ten current nations that lived in that land, and that they would be destroyed and scattered to make room for Abraham and his descendants to come in. But in the midst of giving Abraham that prophecy of the dispersion of those nations, he said to him this, he said that your people will be slaves in a country that is not theirs for the space of 400 years. And then he gives the reason for that. He says, this is why, and I think it's in verse 16 of that chapter, it will come up on the screen. He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, when you read the list of 10 nations that God says will be judged, the Amorites is only one of those 10 nations. And what that means is that 9 out of 10 of those nations had already come to the point where God was ready to judge them and overthrow them from their land because of their sin. But for the sake of even one, the Amorites, a Gentile, a heathen, a pagan nation that had not yet come to the point where they were past repentance, God allowed his people to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years to give them the full space that he gives every person in every nation in order to come to repentance. Now, we know that ultimately they did not. But I share that with you to say that Israel knew from the very beginning of the foundation of their existence that it is God who lifts one up and sets another down. Once those 400 years had passed and God finally did bring his people into the land that would become their own, God used the Israelites as the instrument of judgment to remove those nations from that place in order that they might then have it. And God was clearly showing them that if a nation doesn't listen to God, 
if they violate his word and his principles, if they go their own way, if they allow his spirit to be scoffed at continuously, that the time will come that he will judge that nation. And God made sure that on the very first day that Israel existed in that land, that they knew that those were the terms of their possessing of that land. Well, the time progressed, and Israel conquered the land. It was divided to the 12 tribes. The law was given to them by Moses. And in the day of their establishment, Moses read before them his word, and a promise was given with a warning that God would hold them there and he would prosper them and he would bless them if, and here's the warning, they would remain faithful to him. But if they should turn from him and if they would forget him and if they would forsake his word and his laws and his ways, then they also would be forsaken and they would leave from that land. As it was for those whom you dispossessed, so also will it be with you if you don't obey and follow me. So they came in. And they knew who God was. They know that he gives. They know that he takes away. And so they possessed the land. They grew in the land. They prospered in the land. But in the process of time, their allegiance to God and their dependence upon God began to drift and fade away. And the prosperity that they had enjoyed because they were a people that feared the Lord became more important to them than the things that God had told them that they were to do and who it was that they were to be. And so the preservation of the prosperity became more important to the people than the mind and the heart of God and what he wanted and what he said. Even the good leaders that Israel had once the period of the kings came, those that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, that made good decisions and had good policy, even they were motivated by and large by the physical outcomes of what their decisions and policies would do, rather than the spiritual health of the nation as a whole. And thus the leaders were evaluated by the people based upon their ability to promote and preserve prosperity rather than to preserve or advance the the, the purposes of God that he had for that nation. And so the result of that for Israel was the gradual removal of, of God's hand and of God's blessing from being upon them. In Psalm 106, verse 15, it says that he gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. They wanted prosperity without God, and so God began to allow that to exist in their borders. They continued in prosperity, but without the hand of the Lord. And any time the hand of the Lord is diminished from a people, the automatic result of that is that there's going to be a leanness of soul. But that has consequences. Because once God begins to remove his hand and his presence from a nation, things don't stay the same way that they were when they were set up. And so now the people had to begin to work harder in order to preserve what they had. They had to work seven days instead of the six days that God had ordained. And once you work seven days instead of six days, what disappears from your life? Your relationship with God. There was one day that they were to spend sanctified, completely exclusively set apart to cultivate their relationship with him. But that was pushed into the background. And so there was no more a relationship between the people that God had established and the God who had established them. And thus, because there was no relationship, there was a greater void that existed within the hearts of the people. And anytime there's a void in the heart of a person, they're going to find something to fill it with, and thus idols and idolatry was introduced into the land. The people turned from the living God, like it says in Jeremiah, the fountain of living waters, and they hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. And thus their life began a continual pursuit of trying to satisfy themselves outside of the source that can satisfy. And the result was leanness of soul. The other outcome of that is that they failed to raise up their children in the ways of the Lord. Because they didn't have time, because they didn't have it in their hearts to do the things in the will of God. They didn't pass the instructions in the things of God onto the next generations. 
And thus what you had was successively secular generations that were coming up one after the next in the temperature of a zealously hot nation continually and then exponentially cooled as the people drifted further and further away from God to the point that they had completely forgotten their purpose for existence as a nation. They existed as a nation to bring glory to the true and the living God amongst all the other nations in the world. They existed purposefully as a nation to bring truth to the world through the prophets that would pen the word of God that would point the way to the Savior. They existed purposefully to bring the Savior into the world that would be the hope and the light of all nations. But they had completely forgotten that purpose and they had lost their distinction amongst the nations and thus their witness was completely diminished. That's what they began or became in the prophet or the process of time. Now we come to Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel stands apart from from the prophets, the other prophets, in that he was prophesying in the years wherein the judgment of God had already begun upon the nation of Israel. The northern tribes had already been carried away into captivity. Ezekiel among them. When Ezekiel prophesies, in fact, even when he's called, he doesn't even live within the borders of Israel anymore. He's already been carried out. And he begins his ministry by, the, by the, uh, the brink of the river Chebar in Babylon, already carried off captive. The southern tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem had not yet been judged. They were in the interim between the two. And so the process of judgment had already begun, but there was still space and time for Israel to repent and turn back to God. And thus Ezekiel gives his message to Israel in those days. But what we find the condition of the nation to be when Ezekiel gave his word is that ultimately they were worse than all of the other nations that surrounded them. And the reason for that is because of a false sense of security that they had. Well, we serve the living God. And so therefore we cannot fall. We cannot be taken down. And that's what Ezekiel describes in the first 16 verses that we read there in chapter 22. What God saw, the condition of the nation, as he lists off their sins one by one to him. And then in verses 17 through 22, God summarizes the spiritual condition of Israel by saying to them that when I look at you, I look for gold, I look for silver, but all I see is brass and tin and iron and lead, which is the waste that's left over after everything that's precious has been removed. And what God essentially says is he looks at the spiritual condition of that nation that had been birthed into existence for the purpose of magnifying and glorifying God is that he says it has become completely and totally worthless. They thought that because they were powerful and wealthy that they were something. But when God looked at what they were, he saw that what they were was absolutely nothing. What I want to look at tonight is in the last few verses of chapter 22, verses 23 through 31. I want to highlight for you three things contained in these verses uh, that are here before us tonight as citizens of another country that God has raised up for his purposes that finds itself on the very brink of of ceasing to exist because of our failure to follow him in the way that he's called and asked. The first thing is the root of the problem. What God saw that stirred his heart to want to judge the people. He gives that to them there. Second of all, the potential solution or the ultimatum that God gives them, hoping that they'll turn back. And then finally, the coming consequence should they continue upon the course that they were on. The first thing that we see in these uh, verses, beginning in verse 23, is the root of the cause. What was the cause that was bringing or inciting the judgment of God upon the people? Notice what the prophet says by the Spirit of God in verse 23. It says that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, and her is just personification of the nation itself of Israel, always in the feminine, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. Meaning you've come as a nation, you've been, when, been walking this course, you've been going through time, and, and what's happened is you've come to the point now where judgment is pending, 
and you're on trial at that moment as to whether or not you're clean or unclean. And if you're clean, then you'll pass through this time and the indignation won't come. But if you're unclean, then you'll find that the wrath of God is going to fall upon you. And the the conclusion that God gives right before he even tells them anything that's wrong is he says that you are not cleansed. You're the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. And here's my problem with you. This is what God says. And he's going to speak to four groups of people here. And listen to me tonight, because every person, every person falls into one of these four categories including all of us here tonight. We, we are all one of these four things, and God is going to say what he has wrong with these four. He's going to talk first to the prophets, then he's going to talk to the priests, then he's going to talk to the princes, and then he's going to talk to the people. All four of those things God addresses uh, right here. And he begins with the prophets in verse 25. He says that there is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, or in the midst of the land. Now, the word conspiracy that's used here and employed by uh, the translators in this is not the same word conspiracy that you and I uh, would use in in our modern language or context. You know, we think of conspiracy as being, you know, a plot that is, that exists uh, uh, secretly, you know, to, to do something. That's not the idea. The word conspiracy, literally, it means an ungodly uh, union or a, a gathering, or a confederacy, an ungodly or illegal confederacy that exists, meaning that they're all banded together. It's as though there's a preacher's union, and that's what God sees when he looks at it. That there's a conspiracy or a confederacy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. Now, the prophet of God in the Old Testament, and really throughout the whole Bible, is the person who speaks for God. And a prophet can be anyone. It's not restricted to someone who's from a certain tribe or even someone who's from a certain nationality. We read of Balaam, who it says was a prophet, and yet he was a Gentile. We read of Abraham before there was even a Jewish nation, and he's called a prophet. Uh, we read in the New Testament that there were prophets, a prophet named Agabus. And, and, and a prophet really is anyone who speaks forth the word of God. In fact, in the New Testament, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And what the prophets were in Ezekiel's day are what we would equate as the modern day pastors, or those that are the spokesmen for God, those that open up his word, those that speak in his name, those that give his instruction and his counsel, those that speak under the inspiration and anointing of the Holy Spirit. That is what the prophet represents. That's who God is addressing here in this thing. And he says that there's a confederacy among them and they've become like roaring lions ravening the prey. And here's what they've done. They've devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and the precious things and they have made her many widows in the midst thereof. And so the first indictment that God brings against the prophets or the preachers in the day of Ezekiel or in the day of judgment is that they were making the purpose of God's people the enrichment or the advancement of themselves. They were gathering souls together trying to build as much of an influence and as much of a crowd as they could for the sake of their own personal gain. That was the motive and the rationale and the reason behind their ministry and what they were doing. How big and how large can I make myself? And God says as he looks at that, that the result of it is that they have made her, being Israel as a whole, many widows. You see that there at the end of the verse? Now, the idea is not that the prophets were killing the men. You know, that, okay, well, they killed the men, and so now all that's left are the women, and they are widows. That's not the idea. Here's the idea. The word widow in the Hebrew language is the word almana. The reason I share the Hebrew with you is because the root of that word is the word alma, which in Hebrew is virgin. So alma is virgin, and almana is a virgin who's been desolated or a virgin who now needs help, a virgin who's been robbed, a virgin who's been left or stripped of her honor, so to speak. And the reason that's significant is because of what God calls his people throughout the Bible. He calls them his bride. Israel was the bride of God. 
The church in the New Testament is the bride of Christ. The apostle Paul, who was a faithful minister of God, he said that the goal of his ministry was to present the church as a chaste virgin to Christ. That was what drove him and motivated him, was the beautifying of the church, of the edifying of her and lifting her up and preparing her for the day when she'll meet Christ face to face. Well, the picture that God is painting here of the prophets of old, the prophets that he would judge, is that they've taken the beauty and the glory and the honor and the worship and that which is precious that belongs to God and that's supposed to be for God and they've consumed it themselves. They've made it about them. They have robbed the honor and the glory that goes to God. What should be deflected upward is drunk deep and enjoyed by the preacher, the one who is giving the message. The gift that is offered in simplicity and in honest worship to God that is to go to the things of God is being consumed and extorted by the prophet dishonestly, by, by, by fraud, by lies. And God looks at it and he says, you've taken what's to be a virgin, espoused and beautified for me, and you've turned her into a widow. That's the first indictment. Now, the reason why they're needy and desolate is the second indictment that God gives to the prophets, and it's in verse 28. In verse 28, he says, look with with me at it. It says that her prophets have plastered them, the people, or the wall, or her, her walls, with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. So not only have the prophets used the ministry and the people of God to enrich and magnify themselves, but also, number two, what they've given to the people of God in the process of their ministry is that which cannot help them in the day when trouble comes. Untempered mortar is what he describes it as there in the verses. And the idea is that you are plastering a wall. Or, if you want to use mortar as the example, what you're using to stack layers of bricks upon one another is untempered. Meaning that it will not cure or harden the way that it's supposed to and give strength to the wall or last the way it's supposed to. It stays liquid. And therefore, as long as everything stays dry and there's no weather and there's no storm you could look at the wall and it will look strong or it will look beautiful but as soon as the first rainstorm comes in the rain is going to seep down that wall get into the pores of the cracks and that mortar is just going to wash away leaving that wall completely without strength it will lose its balance at the slightest storm and it will fall and that which was supposed to be to strengthen and beautify ultimately doesn't have the power to do that. And so when the storm comes, the wall will ultimately fall. What does it speak of in the spiritual context of the ministry of a prophet? It's when a prophet gives a feel-good, easy, watered-down message that strokes the soul and rubs the emotions, but can't reach down into the spirit and perform ultimate change within the life of God's people. The ministry of a prophet of God, and whether that be the prophet of the Old Testament or the pastor of the New, is to deliver the word of God to the people of God by the spirit of God in a way that it reaches beyond the emotions in the soul, gets into the heart and the spirit of the man or the woman where it can affect change. And where things can be done in that life that will protect it against the storm that's to come or to set the direction of that life in a path or in a way that destruction cannot harm it. And when a message is given that is simply emotional, or that is based upon a fable, but neglects the pure teaching of the Word of God, then the person who's hearing that message might be tickled, but they are not equipped. They are not protected. They are left vulnerable. And when God sees that He appoints someone to the ministry of equipping, protecting, and building up, And in the wake of that ministry, he sees a fattened prophet and a weakened people. It gets God mad. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, 
The soul is the seat of the emotions. It's where we feel. The spirit is what relates to God. That's what's eternal. That's what's lasting. That's where change happens that can work its way out into the life of you and I. And if something only touches the soul and doesn't affect the spirit, then the net profit is zero. Nothing good has come out of it. The piercing asunder, the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And it makes God angry when the ministry is used as a platform for enriching the prophet and it leaves the people destitute and without that which is necessary for an effective relationship with God. The Apostle Paul wrote to his uh, son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he says uh, to him there, the last words of Paul just before he's about to uh, go to heaven, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. It was true in Ezekiel's day, and it is absolutely the spiritual state of the church in the United States of America in the year 2016. The pastors have left off the teaching of the Word of God, and in a conspiracy or a confederacy amongst themselves, they look at what's the greatest trend, what's the newest message, what's the thing that's building the crowds, what's speaking to people and bringing them in, and they will share it regardless of whether or not it is of God or whether or not it is actually profitable to the people. And Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. And so the Lord's indictment against the prophets in a nation that he will judge is that they're serving themselves and they're not feeding and building up my people. They're fattening them for the slaughter, not equipping them for battle. The second group of people that he addresses in this uh, set of verses in verse 26, he addresses the priests. Now, you, you might say, well, isn't that one and the same? You know, a prophet and a priest and the whole thing. No, they're different. A prophet could be anyone. It can come from anywhere. They're called by God. They're used by God. A priest is someone who's appointed. You had to be, in order to be a priest in the Old Testament, a descendant of Levi. And then it had to be your course, your turn. And so the priests were those that were appointed. It was more of a duty for them. It was something that they were rather than something that they were necessarily called to be. And it absolutely has its application in the New Testament church in this way. The Bible says this, and listen, sober up church, because this is where we fall mostly into this list of things. The Bible says that you and I, that we are a kingdom of priests unto our God. A priest is someone who stands before God on behalf of men and someone who stands before men on behalf of God, a mediator, if you will. So when God looks at humanity, he sees the priest and the priest intercedes for the people. When people look to God, they look to that priest and the priest represents God to them in his place, ambassadors, if you would. And God looks at us and he says, in the context of a lost and dying world that's looking for answers, you and I are those priests and priestesses. We represent God to a lost and dying world. And God looks at us when he measures the temperature of that nation. We're a kingdom of priests. And so this is the indictment to them. In fact, if you want to, in the margin of your Bible, you could just near that word priest, just write the word Christians, because that's who he's speaking to here. This word is to the Christians. He says, here's what it is, verse 26, that the priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things and they've put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned from among them. So here's the indictment that God brings against the people that were called to represent him is he says, first of all, that they've profaned his holy things. The word profane just simply means to dilute or to defile 
or to water down. Second of all, he says that you've made no difference between the holy things and the things that are profane. You've just blurred the lines of distinction that exist between what's right and what's wrong, what's clean and what's unclean, and you've made them all the same, and that the result of that is that when people look at your life with the intent of seeking to find out who God is, they cannot bring it to its proper conclusion. He says, my name is profaned among them. They they cannot find out who I am by looking at you because you've become so much like them that there's absolutely no distinction any longer in any of it. And I want them to know me. You've blurred the lines of distinction between what's acceptable and what isn't. You've removed holiness as a mark of what the Christian life is. And you've made the path that I've ordained to be narrow extremely wide. And God says, it's a very bad thing (laughs) there. So he speaks to the priests. The third group of people that he speaks to in verse 27 are the princes. Now, the princes were the rulers. They were the politicians. They were the kings and the magistrates and the governors and the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds and the captains of tens. And he says to them in verse 27, he says, her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls for the sake of dishonest gain. And what God's indictment against the princes is is that they were using the people as pawns to enrich themselves. Now that's something that happens in politics. I mean, we're even surprised by that. Do we even listen any longer to a politician give his promises and his concerns or uh, stand upon the Senate floor and plead his cause and even think in our minds for one minute that they have our best interest in mind? I mean, that's like we just shrug our shoulders. We kind of just laugh that off. I believe without knowing uh, all that I would have to know in order to make this statement um, purely dogmatically, I would venture to say that every piece of legislation that has been passed into law in the United States of America in the past 100 years falls under the category of what God says here. Using the people to enrich or preserve the power and the wealth of those that are in control or in power. And when God looks at a nation and he sees that the rulers of that nation exist for that purpose, it's only a matter of time before his judgment comes in because it's an absolute gross misrepresentation of what government is supposed to be, and certainly of what God's government is. And then finally, in verse 29, he gives the fourth uh, group of people, which of course is the people. He says in verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. The indictment that God brings against the people of the land in Ezekiel's day, and it certainly applies in our day, is that they put prophets before people in order of priority. Wealth is more important than souls. We live in the United States today in a capitalist society. And the beauty of a capitalist society is that it provides an opportunity for the hardworking person to prosper. In a free society where there's righteousness and the people are following the things of God and things and lives are in their proper context and people are more important than profits, capitalism can be an incredibly wonderful thing. But when capitalism is hijacked by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, then the outcome is much different. Then it provides an opportunity for greedy people to exploit others and to enrich themselves at their expense. And God calls that here oppression, robbery, vexation, and wrong. And he looks at them and he says, that's what you've become. You've exploited your freedoms and your opportunities and you've used them rather to enrich yourselves at the expense of pushing someone else down and God's not happy about it. So God gives the the root of the problem. He speaks to the prophets, to the priests, he speaks to the princes, and he speaks to the people. And he says, the root of everything that's turned sideways in your land starts with those things. And the outcome of it is that you have become completely and utterly polluted, defiled, and, and waiting impending judgment. 
But the chapter doesn't end there. Aren't you glad? When we come to verse 30, we come to the second thing that, that Ezekiel brings to us by the Spirit of God, and that is the potential solution or the ultimatum that God sets before them as they're in that condition. And that's the hope that we have here tonight. The hope of this message is contained in verse 30. Notice what he says there. He says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge. To make up means to fill up, and the hedge is the hole. So I sought for someone that would fill up the hole that's been made in the wall. And someone that would stand in the gap. That is that there's been a breach in the defenses. And God's looking for someone that will stand up. And who is that someone? He says someone from, notice, among them. That will stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But God's word, at least in Ezekiel's day, he says that I have found none. So what is God looking for? He tells us, first of all, that he's looking for a man. And when he says a man, he's not speaking of the male. He's speaking of the human, the person. He's looking for a life. And I don't know why, but it's in God's preference that he wants to use people and that he does use people. Anytime that God wants to do something in the world, he does it through a person. He doesn't have to do that. We see an account in the Chronicles where God with one angel slew 180,000 men without any involvement of a man at all. He just answered the prayer of Hezekiah. That was all that it was. God could do anything that he wants. The Bible says that the universe spans his hand. But yet for some reason, he chooses to use people. He chose Abraham and raised him up to bring a nation into the world, to bring his son into the world. He didn't have to do that. He could have just brought his son into the world like Superman. But he didn't. He used a man. God raised up Joseph to be the deliverer of the people when the famine came for seven years. Why? Why did God do that? Because God uses people. When God would deliver his people from Egypt, he raised up a man. He raised up Moses that would be their savior in the small lowercase s, their deliverer. And thus it goes throughout the Bible. He used Joshua. He used David. He used Daniel. He used Samuel. He used the prophets. He used Peter and Paul. He's been using people. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for a man. Well, a man to do what? Well, notice, second of all, what he says. He says, I sought for a man. And this is key. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. He says, I sought for a man among them. Do you see that there in the verse? Among who? Among the prophets, the priests, the princes, or the people. Now, what's the significance of that? Because you said earlier on that everyone falls into one of those categories, so wouldn't it stand to reason that, of course, they're going to come from among that four groups of people? But it's more than that. It's this. It's from among them, standing in the gap, realizing, and here it is, listen, that they are the problem. The indictment is against all. There's not one within the land that was innocent. There's not one that wasn't a part of the problem. No matter what group they found themselves in, they were guilty of it. And what God was calling for was a repentant sinner, someone who would own the sin themselves, stand up in the gap and fill the hole where now the judgment of God would enter in because of the vulnerability or the obstruction of his ways to close off the wall. God says to stand in the gap before me so that when God looks, he sees that person for the land. That is, that when the person looks, they see that person as well. And the idea is this. Here's the idea. Is that, you know, you remember those pictures from the Tiananmen Square incident um, back in communist China a bunch of years ago? And, and you saw the tanks rolling into Tiananmen Square to break up that protest. And there were certain people that stood up and they stood in front of that tank that was coming to disperse that gathering. And the statement that they were making by standing in that place is that if you want to proceed any further in your cause, you're going to have to run over me to do it. And that's what God says that he's looking for. He's looking for a person that can see with sober eyes the condition that the nation is in. That can own within themselves that they are as guilty as everyone else. But they're willing to repent and put away that sin and then stand before God in that place of saying, God, if you're going to judge the nation, then fine, because you are a righteous God and we're a fallen people. 
but you'll have to kill me first to do it. That's what God said he's looking for in the heart. So often we have made this verse about simply just someone who's going to pray. Someone to stand in the gap and make up the hedge. Someone that will intercede for the nation. That there's no one that's willing to get down on their knees. No, 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 no. Understand this. That in Ezekiel's day, there were very definitely people that were praying. God acknowledges it. Isaiah chapter 58, notice what God says. He says, cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. And notice what God says. He says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Why have we fasted, they say, and don't and you don't see? Why have we afflicted our soul and you take no knowledge? And here's the answer. God says, behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate to smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice be made heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness? to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house when you see the naked that you cover him and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh or for your own filthiness? Then shall your light break forth as the morning and your health will spring forth speedily and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your re-reward and then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away from the midst of you the yoke, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of vanity, and if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall your light rise in obscurity and your darkness be as the noonday. Here's what God says. He says, the reason that you're praying, but you're not seeing an answer is because you're praying and you're, you, you will to pray, but you will not do anything. You'll speak, but you will not stand. Notice in verse uh, chapter 59 of Isaiah verse 1. God says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. The second reason why God says that he won't hear even if there's prayer being offered is because it's prayer that's unaccompanied by repentance. Meaning the people will get on their knees. They'll seek God. They'll cry out in desperate plea asking him to do something. But in the secret place of their own heart, they're still holding on to the sins of their life, their affections. And God says, my hand isn't short that it can't save. My ear isn't heavy that it can't hear. But as long as I look and I see the hypocrisy of what's going on under the surface, masked by the flowering words that are coming out of the surface, God says, that's not going to move my hand at all. To stand in the gap is not simply to fall on our knees and to cry out and beg God for, for his healing and restoration. But are we willing to repent of our sins, to own our guilt and our place within the problem? Number one. And then number two, are we willing to stand and do something about it, even if that stance means, God, you'll have to plow over me in the process. In Psalm chapter 106, verse uh, 23 A picture of standing in the gap and making up the hedge is given of the man Moses. It says, therefore, he said, God said that he would destroy them 
had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Do you know what Moses did? He stood up before God and God said, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to destroy this people. They've gone away far too many times. And Moses stood up and he said, God, I will not move from this place. And not only will I not move, but God, if you're going to destroy this people, then start with me right here, right now and blot my name out of your book. And when God saw the heart of Moses, God relented of the wrath that he was going to pour out upon the people. But it wasn't the prayer of Moses. It was the position of Moses. He was willing to stand and do something about it. In Isaiah chapter 6, God looks at the nation and he sees that they had turned from them. And he draws Isaiah to a vision of himself. And Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in that chapter. And God shows him who he is. And Isaiah's response to seeing God and seeing himself is he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And he realizes the wickedness that they had become in the presence of a holy God. And he didn't simply stand and say, God, please don't pour out your judgment upon us. He before the Lord heard the heart of God say, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Who will plead the cause of God in this? And Isaiah responded and he said, here I am, send me. It wasn't simply the repentance of a man who saw his condition and the condition of a nation, but a man who was willing to lay down his life for the purposes of God and seeing them restored upon a people. I think of Nehemiah. And in his days, the entire wall was destroyed. The city had been desolated and he himself was living in a palace in Persia. He had a sweet job. He was making great money and living under great conditions. But his heart was burdened because the wall of Jerusalem was cast down and the people there were suffering. And so he stood up before the king and he said, King, I'm willing to lay down everything I have and leave my life here and go there and rebuild the wall myself that I might see my people brought back to the place where they're supposed to be. He didn't just feel the burden in his heart and ask for permission to go, but he went and he laid down everything that he was and left it behind. And for 40 years, he dealt with the stubbornness of those people and labored with them until the wall was completed. That's what it means to stand in the gap. I think of Daniel, the prophet, who fasted for three full weeks, recognized the judgment of God that had fallen upon the nation, and he repented before him and he said, we are unclean, we have sinned before you, we have fallen and profaned your holy name. And God, now show us what to do in the day that you're going to move and willing to lay down everything of his life, God then laid out for him the future of Israel's history and gave him a message and said, now go and give it to my people. I think of Ezra, the scribe, who was contemporary with Nehemiah, the task of rebuilding the wall, and constantly opposed by the magistrates of that land. No, you can't build. No, you can't. And he was called as a lawyer to hold up the law of Artaxerxes and hold it before the magistrates, the local principalities, and to say, listen, we have an edict. We have a decree. This is our right. And he fought for the people and he saw those walls. Do you understand that it isn't just coming forward? It isn't just falling on our faces. It isn't just calling out to God in repentance. That's part of it. But are we willing to lay down our very lives so that when he taps us on the shoulder and he says, this is what I've called you to do and this is your part in the wall, that we're willing to stand there and build it. I'm afraid that many of us, even if we're willing to pray, we are very much unwilling to stand and to go. But that's what God's looking for. And he looked for it in Ezekiel's day and sadly he couldn't find it. And he's looking for it in our day. And I wonder what it is that he sees. I sought for a man among them that would stand in the gap, that would make up the hedge before me for the land. And when he looks at it today, every one of us here knows the condition that our country is in. Every one of us here can feel, even on our physical flesh right now, the heat wave of God's breath as he stands at the border waiting for this nation to repent. And yet, are we willing 
to lay down even one meal for the sake of seeing restoration again within our land. God looks for someone that will stand. He finishes the chapter with the coming consequence should nothing happen in verse 31. Notice what he says. He says, Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed or repaid upon their heads, saith the Lord. It has been well quoted, well said, that the only thing that it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And where we stand in the United States of America today in relationship to the judgment of God is that the only thing it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. It is a fact that this country was founded upon God and upon godly men. You need look no further than the founding documents and the writings of those early days and the history of those days to, to prove that fact out completely. The cornerstone that was laid first upon that foundation was the Constitution with the Bill of Rights. Those are the founding documents, as we call them, the founding or the foundation. That cornerstone was laid upon the foundation of God and godly men within this country. And that document alone is what guarantees and preserves the rights and the enjoyment of the life that you and I have. Now, here's what we know as it stands today. We know that the people that rule our nation would like to see that document removed from its place. They would like to remove that cornerstone from it. We also know that the framework for what will replace that, if it is removed, is also in place. You know how you can see what that is? Just turn on the news and just start watching the things that are going on in the country today. What is the framework of, of what would replace it? Gender neutrality. Hate speech eliminated. The limitation or the restriction of worship if it affects or is constituted as or considered hate speech or a threat to someone else or a threat to someone else's uh, sense of well-being or the way that they feel. That's the framework and the thousand other things that are like it that will replace the Constitution should those liberties or guarantees of what we have be taken out of the way. And all it will take right now in this nation is one thing big enough to start making dominoes fall down for that constitution to become suspended. A bomb going off in the right place. We talked about these things last time. I won't be redundant and, 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 and go through that again. But that'll be the first thing that happens is that the constitution will be suspended. And, and mark my words, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. But as a rational thinking human being, I'm telling you this that if the Constitution of the United States is suspended, it will never again be the law of this land. It will be suspended forever. Because the chaos of the sequence of events that will surround whatever causes it to be suspended will change the landscape morally, economically, spiritually, culturally of this country forever, and that document will be completely outdated. And in that one minute, what you and I are enjoying right now, the context of our American life, will vanish forever. Within one or two years of that happening, there will no longer be Bible teaching churches in the context that we have them right now. There will be churches, but they'll be the churches that we read about in 2 Timothy. Teachers with itching ears, stroking the soul and the emotion. But if anyone wants to stand and read Numbers chapter 15 where a man was stoned for violating the Sabbath, if anyone wants to read number 16 where a man was killed because of his idolatry and his fornication, if anyone wants to read Deuteronomy or the things that God has spoken in his word, or Romans chapter 1 that decries the sins that we see so openly paraded in our society today, if anyone wants to stand upon the word of God, they will immediately be removed under the pretext of hate speech. Do you see the landslide that we're standing up against right now? We are in a very vulnerable place as a nation. What I want you to realize is this tonight, as we close, and we are closing, is that the solution to the calamity that we are facing and that we are in as a nation tonight is not going to come from the White House. 
or from the houses of Congress or from the courts. The solution to the problems of our nation are going to come from the church house. They're going to come from right here. Because God is not looking for a president, someone who can lead and enact good national policies that will bring us back. God is not looking for the ACLJ or an attorney that can advocate the rights of his people. God is not looking for those things. He is looking for a man. In the days of Esther the queen, God found a simple Jewish woman that could stand before a king and based on her intercession and faith to action alone, a whole race of people was preserved. That's who God's looking for. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart is perfect towards him. Not perfect, nobody's perfect, the Bible is clear. But perfect towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And I wonder in this so severe an hour, if there be anyone here among us that will see things as they are and hear the voice of the Spirit of God and the knocking upon the heart and that would be willing to first of all repent, to own the transgression of their own life and to turn it aside and then to lay down their life and to be an instrument that God can use in the days that we live in that we might see again the glory of God in our nation as it was intended to be. That's what he wants. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his wicked ways and live. Jesus said, I am come to give them life and life more abundantly. And it was for that sake that he laid his own life down. God is willing, God is wanting to restore and to revive. And what he's looking for is right here in this room. It's not the ballot box. Do you understand that? It's when you and I will get honest with ourselves and honest with our own condition and we'll lay it all down at His feet and live completely and only for Him. That's where it begins. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. Lord, as we examine these incredibly heavy and sobering things, Lord, I can't help but hear and feel the spirit of Ezekiel in this place tonight pleading with our nation, pleading with us. Oh Lord, we as a nation of priests, we, even we in this room, Lord, we failed to represent you in the right way. We've remained silent when it's our place to speak. We haven't stood for righteousness in a time when we could have rightly represented you. In our own lives, Lord, we've been laden with compromise and we've broadened the path that you've called narrow. And we ourselves have been a stumbling block for those that would find the way of truth and the way of life. Father, we in this room here tonight are guilty of putting prophets before people, of looking out for ourselves and forgetting, Lord, that souls are eternal and made in your image. God, we've become so self-consumed. We've become so lost. Lord, I have. And we ask tonight for forgiveness. Lord, our churches have cast aside the Bible, the Word of God. We've turned it into a show. We've turned it into a concert and a place of entertainment. We've made no distinction between that which amuses and that which edifies. Father, we've allowed these things to happen as long as it's maintained the status quo. And we've evaluated leaders based upon their ability to preserve our wealth rather than their ability to maintain spiritual health. Father, we're guilty. We ask tonight, Lord, for your forgiveness. We plead the blood of Jesus Christ upon the United States of America. We pray that you'd start right here. Cleanse us, Lord. Forgive us. Heal the breach that exists in our own lives and in our own heart. Bind up what's wounded. You said, Lord, come, let us reason together. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you'll see the fat of the land. Father, start in us. Start in us, Lord. We plead the blood of Christ on our churches. We plead it upon the Christians. We plead it upon our families and upon our marriages. We've made it something it was never intended to be. We've exacted the pleasure and cast aside the purity. We've ruined the picture, Lord, of you and your bride, you of your church. We plead the blood upon our nation, upon its offices, upon its presidency, and the joke that it's become. We plead the blood upon our economy, O oh God, and the way that we've used it, the manipulations. We plead the blood upon our laws and upon our courts, upon our ideals and our standards, upon our morality, God. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. We agree in Jesus' name that we're guilty before you. And we ask that you would heal and restore. Father, tonight, in this room, here in this place, would you begin a work of restoration? Your word talks about times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Father, we ask that we would be filled again with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that light would arise upon us, that you would give to us a new, fresh, and mighty baptism, that this night, Lord, you would give us a commission individually like you gave to Isaiah or to Daniel or to Nehemiah, that you would put a burden and a vision in our hearts of who we are in Christ and what we've been put on this earth to do. And may we as Esther stand and say, for such a time as this, God, you've raised us up and if we die, we die. But could it perhaps be, God, that you would use us and that we would live? Change us, heal us, restore us, fix us. May it be more than words. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. Take up your work in each one of us. Apply these things personally. And may the song that we sing now be so much more than words. And we ask it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.